We're finishing a series today called Core Beliefs of Christianity. These are what are essential, non-negotiables. You know what? Tattoos and Bible piercings not even in there. Did you know that? Wine isn't even in there. I could just sit here and name the date of the rapture is not one of those uh, essentials. There's only a few that are absolutely essential core beliefs of Christianity. And so, we've been looking at the fact that all glory belongs to God alone. We've been looking at the fact Jesus alone is Lord and Savior. There's salvation in no other. The Bible alone is the authoritative Word of God. And grace alone is the foundation for life with God. We close this by now looking at faith. Ephesians 2, Paul says, we are saved by grace through faith. Now, to me, that sounds pretty simple and clear, but oh my, bring it into church and all kinds of arguments abound. And so, there are a few important issues you need to understand. A number of years ago, one group of people said this in response to the idea that salvation comes by grace through faith. They said, well, that's true. You can't earn being saved. But we don't want to have cheap grace. You can't simply say, I want Jesus to be my Savior, but I want want Him to be my Lord or something like that. Saving faith has to include, they said, the intention to follow Jesus as Lord, not just Savior. So that idea became known as Lordship Salvation. Leave it to the church to make stuff hard. Okay? I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to wrap it around your head and squeeze it till it breaks. This is not Christianity when you do this. The idea that being saved, they said, includes the intention of following Jesus as Lord. Then another group jumped up in church and said, but you can't say that because that adds works to faith. The Bible clearly explains, this is them talking, that nobody is saved by good works. We're saved by grace alone. We receive grace by faith when we believe. That's what gets us into heaven. And this group said grace plus nothing is what saves. And this group accused the other group of works righteousness. And the other group accused this group of cheap grace. Now, who was right? Well, actually, both sides were wrong. The problem in this debate is not the point on which the two sides disagree. The problem was that both groups defined the word being saved incorrectly. Both groups defined being saved as your attempt to meet satisfaction of minimal entrance requirements into heaven. So this became the focus of the fight. How little can you intend to follow Jesus and still be admitted to heaven when you die? But when did Jesus ever say, okay, boys, here are the minimum requirements for getting into heaven? He never said that. Imagine a groom saying to a bride, sweetheart, what's the minimum amount of fidelity and commitment I have to give you to stay married? Or imagine applying for a job and saying, excuse me, sir, what is the minimum amount of work I have to do not to be fired? So heaven's not the kind of a place you want to be if you're just looking for minimum. Jesus never talked about saving faith like this. Hey, boys, here's the least amount of doctrinal truth you have to affirm to make the cut into heaven. Jesus just said, through me, through my life, my death, my resurrection, the presence, the power, the favor, and love of God is available for you to experience. Do you want that? Follow me. That's how you receive it. Trust me with everything, including the eternal state of your soul. Your eternal salvation is a free gift of grace. I bought it with my shed blood at the cross. 
You cannot earn that. So saving faith is not the least amount you have to believe to get in. Saving faith by, comes ha by having a, an absolute posture of total dependence and complete trust in God alone. I've got no part in this. When you put all your trust and confidence in God, you receive forgiveness, acceptance, and eternal life from Him. And so, this leads to another issue that caused a lot of confusion. I'm going to get this out of the way, and then I'm going to take you to—I'm going to end really, really good. <laughs> this leads to the issue that what's the relationship between faith and works? Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 about how Genesis, the book of Genesis, says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he quotes Romans 3.28, Paul says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Now James comes along as an apostle, and he writes James 2, verse 23, addressing that same issue. And he says, and the Scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, for just a moment, it might seem like Paul and James disagree with each other, but they actually do not. What is at stake is the nature of faith that matters to God, the kind of faith that actually changes a life. Real faith in anything affects what we do. Everybody's got faith in something. Everybody. There's a difference when it comes to belief between what I think I believe and what I actually believe. There are beliefs I think I hold, and when time passes, when circumstances change, it turns out they're not beliefs I affirm at all. Here's a funny example and classic from the Bible from Exodus chapter 4. God meets Moses at the burning bush. Moses and Aaron gather the Israelites together. Moses tells them all about God, all about the burning bush and what he said. He shows them some signs and wonders, and we're told the Israelites believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Now they hear, and in that moment, in the safety of being together with Moses, they believe. So they asked Moses to lead them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Moses does. But a few chapters later, when they're leaving Egypt, old Pharaoh decides it wasn't a good idea to let his workforce go free. So he pursues them with his army. In front of the Israelites is the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies are coming up behind them. The Israelites are trapped. Now watch what they say to Moses. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt you brought us out in the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. Now, did they really say that to Moses in Egypt? No, they did not. They said, we believe. You're our leader. We will follow you. Get us out of here. But when the crisis hit, they complained and said, why don't you take us out of Egypt? See, it seemed like they were sincere when they first expressed their belief. They really thought they believed. But when the crisis hit, when trouble came, their belief turned out to be non-existent. See, when circumstances changed, why, they didn't really believe at all. Now, this happens more than we'd like to admit in our lives all the time. For example, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. So we go to church, we pretty up our little hair, we open our Bibles and say, I believe the Bible. I believe what Jesus says. 
And he adds to that, not to be anxious about what we're going to eat, drink, or wear. Don't be anxious about money or possessions. He tells us to trust our Father in heaven. Well, we hear that, and I think, of course, I believe that. I don't trust in money. And then the economy goes south. And then you have a little less money. Then I find I get anxious and stressed. And I find out I don't believe I trust in money as long as I have money. When I lose some, I find out I actually trust it a whole lot. See, when I lose some, things get a little shaky. I find out what my real beliefs are, and they're not what I thought they were. You know, I honor God with my generosity no matter what my income is. If it's 20 bucks, I can put $2 in there out of my—it's it's not going to affect my spirit of generosity. Yeah, all, it, all my income affects is the amount. That's all. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. Well, see, I actually believe that. So, obviously, you can go look at my giving record and say, yeah, he really does believe that. So, when things get rocky, it's really a great time to strengthen your trust in God. God wants you to trust in Him, not your title, your job, your resources, or even your health, or maybe even other people or a group. He wants you sometimes to—he'll to, shake you to just back you off a minute and say, hey, you're losing your focus. You're not trusting me. You're trusting in that. You, you know, you're, you're looking for the ravens to feed you, and I got—it's me who's feeding you, and I control the ravens. So get your focus back on me. I can make things come right again. So it's a great time for all of us to realize money does not love you. Money can't protect you. Money can't save you from death. Money can't save your soul. And as the great theologians, the Beatles said, money can't buy me love. It can probably buy you a night, but it can't buy you love. So it's good to have our illusions dispelled. And that's what Jesus does. He does that with our beliefs. So it's important for us to realize the difference between what we think we believe and what we actually believe. And people become incredibly confused when they don't understand this about faith and works. See, what I believe makes up my mental map. We all have a mental map about how we believe things really are. See, I really believe if I touch fire, I'll get burned. I believe coffee gets me going in the morning. God, thank you for coffee. I believe in gravity. How do I know? I don't have to psych myself up not to step off the edge of a cliff or a building. I don't have to get my prayer book out and go into a fetal position and call on the Lord. I believe if I jump off the side, I'm going to die. What goes up comes down. I believe that. It affects my activity. So I don't have to restrain myself from stepping off a building. My core convictions are demonstrated by my behavior because you never violate your mental map, what you believe about the world. But it turns out our beliefs can be very fickle even though in the moment we think they are sincere. So the real test of what I believe is not what I say I believe, it's, it's, what, it's not even what I think I believe, it's what I do. You know what? You'll never be in divorce court if both you and your wife, or a business deal if you and your partner, both agree on one thing. You can disagree on about everything. But if I'm a believer in Jesus, and God's Word is the final authority, and God tells me, here's how you will respond in this situation, even though I may not want to, even though I don't like it, even though I'm cringing about it, but I will obey, God said to obey is better than sacrifice. 
then I can solve any problem between brothers or any problem between marriage partners. But when one is not submitted, there's not much you can do. There really isn't. So my wife doesn't have to worry about me because I can be rebuked by God's Word. I don't like it. I don't know if any of you have ever had God's Word confront what you wanted to do or how you felt and how you wanted to justify your anger or your behavior or whatever. And God said, and you're just screwed. You just knew it. I'm, I'm toast. That's a good thing. That's a safety valve. That's how you keep people in check. Let His Word dwell in you richly, see? But I'm trying to tell you, I don't always have a good attitude about it. But Jesus didn't say to obey with a good attitude. He just said, obey. Bad attitude or not, obey. My attitude will follow my behavior later. I'll get a better attitude, but do, do what's right. Do what's right. I just want to be honest with you. I'm tired of preachers getting up preaching nonsense uh, as though they got it all together. I mean, there's just plenty of times I want to haul off and hit somebody right in the teeth. I, I, want, to, I want to get even. Okay, but, I, but, my, but the Spirit of God is in me, and my spirit is subject to that spirit. And therefore, I can discipline my spirit and say, I'm not going to respond that way. I'm going to do what God said. But I just said to you, it's just difficult. <laughs> Do you want to hear that, or do you want me to say, praise the Lord? <laughs> what do you want me to say? No, no, you, you can do this. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So, what James says, and when James says faith without works is dead, he's not saying you have to add a certain level of behavioral compliance in order to stay saved. It just means this. If you claim to believe something, but your actions speak otherwise, you don't really believe what you thought you believed. Your actions are a more reliable indicator than your words. Paul recognizes this dynamic. It says, through him, Christ, and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles, the pagans, to the obedience that comes from faith. So he's not talking about an obedience you tack on after you believe that you think you're supposed to. He's simply saying your activity shows what you really believe. Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the, the, the Reformation leader, the champion of justification by faith alone, said faith is a living, creative, active, and powerful thing. Faith cannot help doing good constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if a good work ought to be done, but before anybody asked, it's already done it and continues to do them without ceasing. A man doesn't want to do anything good is probably an unbeliever. So it's just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. Can't be done. So when you recognize the nature of your mental map, you realize your belief and actions go together. Now this leads to another problem which is quite painful. But here's where the fun begins. What do you do when you feel like you don't trust God enough? What do you do when you want to believe that you're saved by faith alone? by God's grace, but you don't feel like you have enough faith. Well, hang on, you're going to be very happy. Abraham is the champion of faith, and Paul talks about him in Romans 4, and he tells us we're to have a trusting relationship with God even when we feel like our faith is weak. So here we go. What shall we then say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered about this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, well, he had something to brag about but not before God. What does the Scripture say? 
Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He is our Father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been told him by God. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was pretty dead too at 90. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God that he would have a son but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what God promised. Now, Abraham is presented in the New Testament as the model for faith. But if you know his story, his faith is not very impressive. And if you don't feel good about yours, you're going to feel real good in a minute. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abram, and he tells him to leave his home, and leave his nation and go to a place where he's going to have a son. God changes then his name to Abraham, meaning father of many people, and he doesn't even have a kid. And he tells him he'll be the father of a great nation. God said, I'll bless the entire human race through your offspring. In the next episode of Abraham's life, in the same chapter, Abraham and Sarah travel to Egypt. Abraham says to Sarah, You're a beautiful woman. You're hot. And I know these Egyptians. Somebody's going to want to take you from me as his wife, and he'll kill me in order to get you. So let's lie. Let's tell them you're my sister so they won't kill me. If one of them wants you, they can have you, but I'll live. Anybody feeling better already? Yes, sir. Boy, get his CDs on home and family. They ought to be really good. Now, it doesn't seem like Abraham is confident God's going to protect him, does it? So they go through with this plan. He throws Sarah under the bus and lets Pharaoh take Sarah into his palace, put her in the royal harem. He gives Abraham sheep, cattle, camels, slaves, and all kinds of riches. And then God appears to Pharaoh in the night and says, excuse me, bud, you've got a prophet's wife, and that's my boy out there. If you touch her, you will, I will kill you. Now, that'll get your attention. I don't know what agenda he had that night, but it changed. And then Pharaoh goes to Abraham, and he asks the same question God asked Eve after the fall. What did you do? Why did you do this thing? What are you trying to do? Kill me? Get me killed? I didn't know that was your wife. I thought it was your sister. That means that this pagan leader is more concerned about doing right than God's man Abraham. Not only that, Abraham does the same thing a second time in Genesis 20. Furthermore, after 11 years of waiting on a kid, Sarah says to Abraham, we've been waiting a long time, baby. I ain't got any more eggs. Why don't you have a child with my servant, Hagar? She's kind of foxy. Abraham didn't say, well, I think I ought to pray about it. He just said, that's a good idea. Thank you, sweetheart. I mean, this is crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's, a, it's a pretty rough culture back then. You got to understand that too. Don't, don't forget that. So Abraham didn't say, no, sweetheart, we got to trust God. No, he agreed it was a good idea, but it ended up being a disaster, and it's a disaster now. Yeah. Thirteen years later, God tells Abraham, Sarah will bury him a child. 
And does Abraham say, I believe God? No, Abraham fell on his face and laughed the laugh of unbelief. Can a, ma can a man have a kid at 100 years of age? He laughed at God in unbelief. And then Sarah laughed too. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why'd Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Does Abraham man up and admit that he laughed? Oh, no. He said nothing. But Sarah was afraid, so she lied, said she didn't laugh. But God confronted her, and so God and Sarah have a little go-meeting with Jesus kind of a get-together, and Abraham's looking on from the sideline. So his faith is so weak, he pretends Sarah is not his wife twice. His faith is so weak, he impregnates a servant girl. His faith is so weak, he laughs at God. But Paul says Abraham didn't waver in his belief, but he believed beyond all hope, and he was fully persuaded by God's power. Now, Paul was a rabbi. He knew Abraham's story backwards and forward. So, Paul, what are you thinking? Will you go back and you enter Abraham's world? When Abraham said yes to God, he's starting from scratch. There's no Old Testament. There's no Bible. There's no David and the Psalms and Proverbs and Moses and the Ten Commandments. There's none of that. There's no priesthood. Zip. This guy doesn't know diddly squat. He doesn't know any stories about the Lord God, Yahweh. He had zero information. He's the product of a brutal, superstitious, pagan, ancient, idolatry-worshiping culture. So Joshua told the Israelites long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the river and worshiped other gods. So Abraham was raved just like everybody else in his culture, a pagan in a pagan world. And as far as we know, Genesis 12 is Abraham's first interaction with a living, good, all-powerful, personal God. And when God spoke to him in a dream, it says he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But he's no, he believed God, but he's no pillar of faith. He doesn't have anything to fit into his paradigm to hold him steady. We've got all of the canon of scriptures today. We've got a major advantage over all of these people. And he says, Abraham went out as the Lord told him. So Abraham is not presented in the Old Testament as a brilliant spiritual genius who innovated ethical monotheism. He is an average, ignorant, confused, superstitious, passive, and cowardly man. That's our daddy, <laughs> spiritual daddy. But his faith was strong because he chose to believe God would give him a son. He was a little screwed up how God would do that in the end. But he kept believing, God's still going to do it. I don't know how. So that's a little bit of faith, right? Paul says, Abraham knew his body was as good as dead. I'm not quite there yet, but some of you are decaying rapidly. <laughs> he was an old man with an old wife. No pharmaceutical company could help him. He didn't allow his wife, you know, he didn't allow his personal life to be determined by what was possible by human power because he realized, I don't have any power. God wasn't going to make this miracle happen until Abraham couldn't do anything else. She's dead. He's dead. Uh, all hope is dead that naturally this will come to pass. And maybe God's got you in a place like that because he's going to do it supernaturally. And it's kind of like... Are you through trying? Are you through getting spiritual hernias? I can make this happen in a day. In fact, in a night. 
And I don't know if you ever thought about it. Uh, these are this, the, over a cup of coffee, but if he's 100 years old, he can't be that good looking. We got anybody in their 90s in here? I don't see any hotties running up to him. And then I haven't seen any 90-year-old woman that everybody would say, oh my God, can you introduce me? Uh, so whatever God did in a tent that night reversed the aging of their body so that Abimelech wanted her for his wife, one of his harems. Are you telling me this guy's either on dope or he is looking at a good-looking woman at 90? God reversed the aging so she could have a baby. I think that's just the coolest thing in the world. Some of you are wondering how you're going to get a new washer machine. Look at this. <laughs> I want to give you hope today, man. Hope. It ain't over till God says it's over. Wherever you, whatever situation you're in, God's going to have the last word, not your lawyer, not the world. <laughs> well, you know, he didn't, he didn't say, Sarah, we just need more faith. He was completely dependent on God to make this happen. So the hero of Abraham's story is not Abraham, it's God. Abraham's daddy, Terah, might have had stronger faith than Abraham, but his faith was in the wrong God, these little idols. Abraham put his small faith in the right God and stayed where God told him to go. So it was better for him to put little faith in a big God than big faith in a little worthless God. That's good news. That's why Jesus said you only need faith the size of a mustard seed. You can barely even see it. It's like a little speck of pepper. If you got that much, God says that's all you need, and you can move mountains with it. Because it's not the size of your faith, it's the size of your God in whom your little faith resides. That's the good news. Pastor Tim Keller talks about this. He's from New York. I love this guy. He's a good writer. When the Israelites escaped from Egypt, Pharaoh pursued them. God parted the Red Sea. All the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on the left. Keller said some of them loved it. Some of them probably said, in your face, Pharaoh, eat your heart out. We're cruising now. Some of them were timid. Some probably terrified. We're going to die. We're going to die. Not all of them expressed the same quality of faith, but they were all equally saved. They all crossed. Those bold and confident, those timid and fearful. It's not the quality of your faith that saves you, it's the object of your faith that saves you. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why Paul inserts, yeah, go ahead, man, we're clapping for God. Yeah, he's a good God. Paul says in Romans 4, 17, he, Abraham, is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. What God is that? The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. The character of Abraham's faith is determined by the character of the God in whom he believed. His hope is not in how strong his faith is. His hope is in this great God the God who calls into being things that are not as though they were, the God who created all things, the God who called the dead to life. Abraham's old body and Sarah's old womb were all pointing to a son to come in Jesus who is the object of our faith. There's never been anybody like Jesus. 
His life, His love, His teaching, His sacrificial death on the cross, His resurrection, all express His total uniqueness. You can bet everything you have on Jesus, not the government, on Jesus. You won't be able to find a better object for your faith. So it's worth betting everything, every moment, every gift, every possession on this God-man Christ Jesus. If you're not placing everything at the feet of Jesus, you're missing the greatest opportunity anyone ever had. We walk by faith. So don't worry about whether or not you have enough faith. Don't even compare your faith. Don't focus on the quality of your faith. Focus on the object of your faith, which is Jesus. And you can do that. And if you've committed your life to Jesus, you're a friend of God. Know that you've been accepted, forgiven, and loved by God unconditionally. Let that knowledge influence the way you live and behave. Don't live your life based on the quality of your faith. Live it based on the knowledge of who God is. And He's awesome. That's what I know. How about a good amen for Jesus? Woo! For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.